0: I've shared this before a number of times when I candidated here and some throughout the last decade that it was really an issue of money that as a senior in high school uh, I had a friend whose older brother had become an attorney in Chicago and uh, his first year an exceptional attorney doing some kind of corporate real estate law there uh, made six hundred thousand dollars and that is exactly what I wanted to do. I have no clue about what he actually did week to week but whatever it was I was willing to do it for fat stacks of cash. That's what I was really interested in and so uh, somewhere over uh, that uh, senior year of high school that summer uh, I read somewhere or heard somewhere a stat that philosophy majors scored higher on the LSATs and on the bar exam than pre-law students did. And I hatched an idea. I'm going to go uh, to college and I'm going to study philosophy, right? So I signed up, uh, went to a little Christian college, had no idea what I was getting myself into in this little Christian college where we had chapel every day, Uh, but uh, went anyway and studied philosophy badly was not a good philosophy student Uh, but that was okay because uh, I didn't need any of the philosophy really I just need the law degree later and that's what I was going to do I got through the first year and generally enjoyed it got to my second year and on the third day of the fall semester where we had chapel not only in the mornings but again in the evenings what we call the fall Bible conference Uh, morning and night, every day for a week, the first week of school, they had invited a Scottish pastor who was now pastoring a church in Cleveland named Alistair Begg to come and preach. I'd never heard of him before. But he had a great accent. Really good accent. And so that was entertaining enough, and the week was pretty good. And we got to Thursday night, which was the last night of the conference, and he had been preaching on various passages throughout the week. And, uh, some of you have experienced this before. We walked into the room on Thursday night, and you could feel it was different. I don't know why, but it, it was. A room which sat comfortably, about 3,500 people, had, I'm going to guess, about 4,000 in it. People were standing in the back and seated in the aisles. I'm sure the fire marshal would have flipped his lid. And the diminutive Scotsman got to the pulpit, and he said, I need you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. He said, I want to speak to you tonight and to myself on the subject of holiness. For as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And then he preached for an hour solid. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Now, I grew up in good churches. We went to church, and uh, we had pastors who preached the gospel to us. In fact, the church that I went to all throughout junior high, high school, and college, and a great pastor, an incredible preacher, but it hit me just right that night. I don't know that I had ever heard the gospel presented as passionately and as clearly and as compellingly as I had heard that evening. And I sat there after it was all over, and and he preached the sermon, and he prayed, and everyone filed out of the room, and it was just me. I'm the only one left in the cavernous chapel there at the university. Stunned, <laughs> just dumbfounded. And I remember exactly where I was sitting. I, I was sitting on the left hand side. Uh, right there about where, uh, where Jim is, right up there near the front and I remember I got down on my knees and I just overwhelmed in the moment and I, and I knelt down beside that pew and I told God if you would give me half the clarity there's a bulb out, We saw it you give me half the clarity explaining the gospel that you just gave that guy and I'll give you everything I'll give you my whole life And the next morning, that's what I did. I got up and I went down to the registrar's office and I changed my major from philosophy to pre-seminary Bible. That led to a Bible degree and that led to seminary and that led to Rocky Mount Bible Church. That's how that all worked out. Still, and I've heard a lot of people preach over the last, I don't know, many years now, in the time that I was at Cedarville University, in the time that I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, I heard some of the most popular, well-known, most published people in Christendom preach. Uh, I have heard sermons from virtually every corner of the Bible, and yet that night still stands out in my memory. I went down a couple of days later after I had first heard it, and they got it for me on CD. You could get it on cassette or CD. I went ahead and got it on CD. That was a And I have listened to that thing probably a dozen times over the years since. and about once a year, I'll break it out. Now, and that's that's what I did uh, this week because that's this passage. The passage that I'm going to preach is the one here. But let me tell you, that was a really good idea and a really bad idea. First of all, it was a really bad idea uh, because I'm not Alistair Begg. I don't have a Scottish accent, right? And I'm walking into this passage with a little bit of experience, but not the kind that he had. And it's something like, getting ready for a pickup basketball game by going on YouTube and watching, like, those old dunk contests with Vince Carter just windmilling into the... uh, (laughs) May not be that this morning. But it was really good in another way because not only does it inspire me to, to preach a more robust and theologically acute and compelling sermon, and it really does, but at some point over the years I realized that Initially, I liked the sermon more than I liked the passage. And I became convicted as time has gone on that one of the great things about that evening was the passage that he preached. I remember being uh, somewhere in my college years having to take a speech class, and it was at 7 o'clock in the morning, which just sounds like the meanest thing that the administration could have possibly done. And I don't remember anything about it, right? Except I remember one morning vividly, there was a couple that sat in the front row together every time. And uh, they were both really sweet people, but uh, she was maybe not a scholar. And, and I say that because uh, we had been working on how you use hand gestures and how you present yourself in front of a group of people, and her boyfriend got up one day, and it didn't matter what little speech you gave. It, it could be something that you wrote or something that somebody else wrote, but you just had to deliver the thing, and you had to follow the motions and the movements around them. And so he got up there, and he did a, you know, fine job, I guess. It was 7 a.m. I could barely remember my name. Uh, But then uh, he sat down, and his girlfriend is just beaming. He's so smart. Can you believe he's so smart? That was incredible, man, honey. I'm just so blown away. And at some point, somebody leans over and goes, you know he didn't write that, right? (laughs) Oh, I think he did. Four score and seven years ago, (laughs) our forefathers, does he often talk to you in scores? Like, does that come up a lot? Like, he, he didn't write that. The sermon that he preached that night was an incredible sermon, not only because he's a gifted preacher, but because it's an incredible passage. An incredi- he had great material to work with. And so to prepare for this morning, I've done a lot of my own exegesis. I've al- uh, uh, also uh, read the passage innumerable times. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture. And I have stolen liberally from Alistair Begg. I just want you to know that as well. Some of it's ingrained. I don't even mean to do it. Uh, and some of it was Intentional. And I'll post a link so that you can see where the overlaps occur uh, on my Facebook page, or we'll send it out through the email. You can go to Cedarville's website and listen to the thing in full. But this is an incredibly special passage to me. I hope that it will be to you. Um, Even if the actual sermon doesn't hit you the right way, it's one of those passages, I suppose the canon is like this, where I could stand up and read it and sit down, and we would all be the better for it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by reading, and I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to read the first half of Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to make some observations about what's happening there. Our big idea is something like this. In the sacrifice of Jesus, all the agenda of heaven is being accomplished. In the sacrifice of Jesus, all the agenda of heaven... Is being accomplished. Father, we stand before you, fearing you, not in terror, but in reverential awe, wowed by your holiness stunned by your love. Help us to regard you for all that you are and all that you have done in sending your son, the Christ, whose name is Jesus, to live, to die, to rise again, to do the work that he does now, an intercessor for his people, to come again for a soul. In whose name we pray. Amen. Starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we find this recorded by our author For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this quote comes from uh, Psalm chapter 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he had said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law." Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The question that is presupposed in this passage and alternately in the book of Hebrews is how can a holy God be reconciled to an unholy people? How can a holy, righteous, perfect, limitless God be reconciled to a people who have rebelled against his kingdom, who have chosen a kingdom of darkness, who have fought against the light, who are enemies of God, how can they be reconciled to such a one as he? And the answer that is explicit in this passage Is this, they might be reconciled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are three things you'll see there in your notes that I have tried to do to hang the sermon on these posts here. The first is this by his sacrifice, Jesus perfects his people. By his sacrifice, Jesus perfects his people. In Hebrews 10, again, verses 10 and 11 there, and we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is, we have been set apart for the holy purposes of God. He says in verse 11, And every priest stands daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. It is astonishing to think about the reality that existed for nearly a millennium there in the history of the ancient world, where the Jews gathered at their tabernacle, again at their temple, and how priests, generation after generation, sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, in the lineage of Aaron there, the Levites, gathered Animal after animal, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of them through the years, maybe tens of millions. For the larger guilt offerings, the priest would stand beside the animal and the offender would lay his head or his hand on the head of the animal and the priest would cut its throat and the blood would be spilled. And this happened over and over and over and over and over. And it never took away sins. It was repetitive. In the most frustrating way imaginable. Until verse 14. For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. We find the testimony of the work of Jesus Christ in offering his body to resolve the problem of the sins of the people in passages here in Hebrews chapter 10. We find it also in passages like this in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the Righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. One of the reasons why Jesus comes is to deal with our problem of sin. Now, I know a lot of very good people, and some of them are followers of Jesus Christ, and some of them are not. Next door, growing up, we had neighbors, and they were the sweetest couple that you could possibly imagine who had no inkling of following Jesus. They did good things. They were nice. They were kind and they were thoughtful. But they did not follow the Christ. They didn't repent of their sin. They didn't turn their lives over to him. And as a consequence, though they may have been very good people, they were not perfect people. And only a people perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ can be worthy to stand in the presence of God the Father. It's not enough to be good. You must be perfect. And the way that the Bible describes everyone who is not perfected by the blood of Jesus is that they are slaves to sin. In fact, Paul will take it a step further, not only in Ephesians chapter 2, but also in Colossians chapter 1, that you are slaves to sin. You are in bondage to the one who holds the keys of sin. You're dead. You were dead men walking and you didn't even know it. Held in bondage to this kind of sin. Um, some years ago I read a, a small book. Elie Wiesel is a survivor of five different concentration camps. Um, a Jewish man who was A youngster was dragged through unimaginable terrors. He writes about, in this little book called Night, his first day in Auschwitz. Around 5 o'clock in the morning, we were expelled from the barrack. The Kapos were beating us again, but I no longer felt the pain. A few minutes of running a new barrack, a barrel of foul-smelling liquid stood by the door, disinfection, everybody soaked in it. Then came a hot shower, all very fast. After we left the showers, we were chased outside. Uh, As we ran, they threw clothes at us pants, jackets, shirts. In a few seconds, we had ceased to be men. Had the situation not been so tragic, we might have laughed. We looked pretty strange. Meyerkatz, a colossus, wore a child's pants, and Stern, a skinny fellow, was floundering in a huge jacket. We immediately started to switch. I glanced over at my father. How changed he looked. His eyes were veiled. I wanted to tell him something, but I didn't know what. The night had passed completely. The morning star shone in the sky. I, too, had become a different person. The student of Talmud, the child I was, had been consumed by the flames. All that was left was a shape that resembled me. My heart had been invaded and devoured by a black flame. So many events had taken place in just a few hours that I had completely lost all notion of time. When had we left our homes? When had we left the ghetto and the train only a week ago? One night, a a single night? How long had we been standing in the freezing wind? One hour, a single hour, 60 minutes? Surely it was a dream. And then silence. Suddenly, the silence became more oppressive. An SS officer had come in, and with him, the smell of the angel of death. Now, I want you to imagine that you have been transported back to 1944, and you're standing on the other side of the fence, and you're looking at this tragedy play out. Here is a man who is in a cruel kind of bondage that the 20th century taught to the rest of history and through muted tones you mouthed to him I see your predicament now save yourself save yourself you know where you are now now save yourself why won't you do it he is in And this is the striking difference between every other religion on the planet and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every other religion at its core has a salvation that is guaranteed by how well you work to prove how good you are. In Christianity, you do not save yourself. God saves you. In every other religion, the statement that it rests upon, it is grounded in, its foundation is prove your worthiness to me in order to live in my love. When the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I'll prove my love to you by giving my son as the only worthy sacrifice. It's what we sing. We were imprisoned, and God in his love by the blood of Jesus Christ has set us free. It's why we sing songs like, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Later he will say, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed in light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. We were in bondage to sin. We had no choice other than sin. Every part of us invested, and enamored with our own sin and Christ has set us free from bondage to sin and death for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemers praise the glories of my God and King the triumphs of his grace he breaks the power of what cancelled sin he sets the prisoner free His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. It's why we read here in Hebrews, for by a single sacrifice he has perfected, that is, he has made holy, he has declared righteous for all time those who are being sanctified, that is, those who are being made holy. Think about that juxtaposition just for a moment, that you are, by the blood of Jesus Christ, both holy and being made holy, both righteous and being made righteous worthy to stand in the presence of God and yet still being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ who by his sacrifice gives you that access. You have been justified, declared worthy and holy inasmuch as Jesus is worthy and holy. And yet on this side of eternity, you are still being sanctified. That is, you are being made holy you are being tuned to be more like the Jesus in whose credit by his imputed righteousness you stand you were in bondage and could not save yourself but one of the reasons why Christ has come is so that he could perfect his saints i need no other sacrifice i need no other plea It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Secondly, by his sacrifice, Jesus prevails over his enemy. By his sacrifice, Jesus prevails over his enemy. We read in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 10, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We read also in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If... C.S. Lewis has said, there are two mistakes that we make commonly when talking about the devil. The first is that we don't give him enough credit. We don't rightly regard our adversary. We let down our defenses. We abandon our armor. We do not do what we've been called to do to protect ourselves and to protect the ones that we love from the wiles and schemes of he who plots against us. But the other mistake that Lewis often makes, or says that we often make, if the first is that we don't give the devil enough credit, the second is that we give him too much. We live in a kind of fear that's entombed in books by authors. I know you know who I'm talking about when I say that. And perpetuate an entire subculture within Christianity that is infatuated with making much of who the devil is. In order to attempt to avoid that same error, this is why C.S. Lewis used to call Satan's smutty face try to put him in proper perspective. He is in many ways the great bastard of heaven. You understand this? Damned by God. He is not as dualism would suggest in many of the religions of the world an equal force fighting in total balance with the God of heaven. That is not who he is. There is not an equal part of light and an equal part of darkness and some very thin line between them. There is a maker who makes things, and there are things that are made, and Satan is a thing that was made. I love that in Revelation 19 when we speak of the great final battle of history when Christ arrives and all the saints are gathered on white horses to follow after him, There is exactly one person who does the fighting, and it is Jesus Christ by the sword that comes from his mouth. This is why I love when Luther, in speaking about the spiritual battle between Satan, our adversary, and Jesus Christ says, of the victory, one little word shall fell him. Does that sound equal to you? He is the great high king who is waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is why we call him the great ottoman of history, right? This is what Satan is. In my office, underneath my desk, when I was a child, my pop had it made from somebody we knew. I got a little stool, right? And that thing lets me change light bulbs, and it lets me kick up my feet (laughs) underneath my desk. In the great metaphor of the book of Hebrews, Satan is not described as some marvelous winged thing, some great evil luminary in history. He's a footstool. That's what he is. When Jesus comes and offers himself on the cross, when he Ascends Gethsemane when he finds himself atop Golgotha and his blood flows down and he is pierced for our transgressions. One of the great achievements in the cross of Jesus Christ is that Satan becomes in that moment defeated. There are many things that Satan may do afterward but his fate is secured in that moment. His destiny apart from God in an eternal lake of fire Is achieved in the blood of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. You may think of watching a master play chess. I am not that masterful chess player, but you know the moment when the one who is very good is playing the game with the one who is not as good, and a smile creeps into his face. They may be 10 or 20 or 30 moves away, but the game is already over. Satan may move his pawns and his rooks and his bishops as much as he likes, but the game of history is over. Christ has won. The battle has been achieved. Victory has been secured. It is not a future thing. It is past tense to the cross, to the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. Satan is a defeated foe. By his sacrifice, Jesus has perfected his people. By his sacrifice, Jesus prevails over his enemy. And finally, by his sacrifice, Jesus pleases his father. By his sacrifice, Jesus pleases his father. We find in that citation from Psalm chapter 40, in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the book of the scroll. Again, he will say in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, this is essential, not only to understanding this morning's message, but it's essential to the Christian faith. Because God is holy, perfect, righteous, beautiful in his perfection, he must demonstrate his wrath over sin. Because God is holy, he must demonstrate his wrath over sin. If we lose sight of the mass and impact of the holiness of God, we find it incredibly easy to distort and disfigure the gospel. Jesus came in part, like we already read in 1 John chapter 2, to provide propitiation for sins, that is, to assuage the wrath of God. Jesus comes to satisfy God in his holy wrath against the sins of those he has made. This is an extremely disorienting idea to much of the world. Um, Many, many Sundays we have sang, In Christ Alone, right? In Christ alone my hope is found, he is my light, my strength, my song, my cornerstone, this solid ground. And on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, was putting together their hymnal in 2012, the new one that they use to this day. And they took out that line. They didn't like that line. And they changed it to, and on the cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, who wrote that hymn, said, oh, oh, hold on a second, that's not what we wrote. Do you understand that that is not the line? We do not give you permission to change the lyric. And the guy said, I, I don't understand. Of course, it's not a very good lyric. Uh, the Reverend Chris Joyner, First Presbyterian Church of Franklin, Tennessee, agreed with removing the song. He said that some of his church members or fans of the song will be disappointed that it was dropped, but the words of the song don't work. He says, in fact, the lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. But we know that this is not true. We know that the cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. What Bible have you been reading? What apostles to whom can you appeal? What figure do you worship that is not holy? In the cross of Jesus Christ, God's holiness and God's mercy convenes. In a book that was written in the middle of the 90s, which reads like prophecy for things that have been realized today, Mark David Wells in the Believing of the Evangelical Church writes, "...because of our therapeutic culture, we favor relational matters over those that are moral, the consequence of which is that God's holiness is pushed into the background and his love is brought into the foreground." mysticism then flourishes and cognitive conviction retreats self-surrender is devalued and self-fulfillment is prized preoccupation with the character fades and fascination with personality and self-image advance the God in whom love has been replaced uh, the God in whom love has replaced wrath produces a Christianity that is appealing for its civility but one that has no serious word for a world which is racked by evil It is a form of belief that is sympathetic but not searching, that lends its ear but not its revelation of the Holy One. Without the holiness of God, sin is just failure. But not failure before God. It is a failure without the presumption of guilt, without retribution, indeed without any serious moral meaning at all. And without the holiness of God, grace is no longer grace. It is not grace from God, grace from the God who, against his own holy nature, has reconciled sinners to himself and Christ. And without justification, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there is no Christianity. So if we lose sight of the holiness of God, we lose the right to call ourselves Protestants in any recognizably historical sense. What's our problem? What is our problem foundationally? It is not like the uh, prosperity gospel teaches, that we don't have enough stuff, right? That is the gospel being preached in many churches in 2020 here in the United States of America. You don't feel well, God can make you feel better. You don't have enough money, God can make you rich. You are not respected enough by your peers. God can give you a promotion. And above all of those things, there's things in common evangelical churches that would surely, by testimony, avert their eyes from such a blatant cash grab. But a God who is here to fix marriages, to reconcile relationships with your children, to help you feel some sense of fulfillment in your job, and to overall give you a sense of fulfillment in this life what then do we have to offer the person, the successful contemporary working person in the United States, whose health is fine, whose 401k is healthy, whose wife loves him, whose children adore him, and whose employees absolutely admire every decision that he makes? Nothing nothing unless we know what the problem really is God is holy and we are not but by the blood of his son you can be made worthy to stand in his presence without it there is no corner of eternity that will fulfill even in shallow ways like you may have found some in this life we have to get the bad news right before we get the good news out. The bad news is God will not tolerate any sin. The good news is God resolves sin in the figure of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about in Luke chapter 5, there's the great story of the paralytic, the man who had never really had use of his legs, and uh, Jesus is speaking in a small house, and the crowds are so vast they can't get in to see him. And so they do an incredible thing. They, they drag their friend up there on the roof. He's on a pallet of some kind, we're told. And, and they cut a hole in the roof. And, and his friends lower him down through so that he can be healed by Jesus. Do you remember the thing that Jesus says to him at first? Now, we understand what his perceived need is, right? He obviously cannot walk. That's why his friends have brought him there. But he finds himself in front of Jesus, and Jesus' first words are, My child, your sins are forgiven you. what I'm sorry what? Don't, don't you understand what my predicament is obviously I mean that's fine the sins and all of that but, but what I really need is Jesus I need to walk <laughs> I can't go around in very you, you've seen what's happened here I have my friends they're, they're not particularly strong uh, uh, Cody is uh, and three have let me down through the roof their arms I'm scared they're going to drop me and, and here I am and the thing that you tell me is uh, my son your sins are forgiven. you Obviously, that's not what I need. I need strength and power in my legs. I need to walk. I need to run. I need to work. I need to. And Jesus helps him walk. Jesus can do these kinds of things. But it's not why Jesus came. Beg wonders if the opportunity will present itself one day in heaven if we could meet this guy and go, what in the world were you thinking when they let you through the roof and you were met by Jesus Christ and he said, your sins are forgiven you. And he would say, for these last 2,000 years, I have known what it is like to live in the company of my Savior and I gladly would have walked (laughs) not one step but lived the rest of my earthly life as a cripple for the joy of knowing my Savior in eternity. It's why we talk about the theology here. We want to be very careful in the way we speak of what Jesus has done. Uh, when I was in school, um, high school maybe, somebody was teaching our youth group and they were saying, uh, we need you to understand what the, the word justification means. Justification's a big word. It's all over the Bible. You read Romans, you read Galatians, you read uh, Hebrews, you read... You're going to find justification pops up all over again. And, And the word justification, which we know rightly means you have been declared righteous based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's what that word means. The declaration of righteousness. Even before you've been fully sanctified, you have been justified. You've been declared righteous on account of what Jesus Christ has done. He's imputed his righteousness to you. And somebody said, well, you know, justification, what you should remember there is it's just as if it never happened, right? Justification, just as if it never happened. Well, that's a good definition if in the sense you mean it, that you mean that Jesus has taken care of all of our sin. But it's an egregiously dangerous definition if by that you mean that God said, all right, all of the things that you have ever done disappeared with, right? Right? I just absolve you of all of your debt. There is no price that has to be paid. Let's just forget it and move on. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God and the mercy of God find their confluence. It's not just as if it never happened. It did happen. It just didn't happen. Someone had to pay the price. The penalty had to be reconciled upon someone's flesh. Blood had to be spilled. Either yours will, or you will repent of your sin and live in the freedom and the blessing that comes from living under the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we find in the most famous verses in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved Luke 15 the prodigal son shuns his father takes his inheritance runs away, squanders it all, and with nothing left, decides it would be better to be a servant in his father's house than a free man living in the kind of poverty that he has accrued for himself. And the scriptures say that while he is still a great way off, the father, who's had an eye out for this young son, he finds him, and he runs to him. Uh, Parables are complicated things, really simple on the surface, but sometimes difficult to understand at the base. But make no mistake, the most alarming and endearing portion of that particular parable, that is erroneously, I think, called the parable of the prodigal son, that should probably be called the parable of the running father, is that this father abandons every entitlement and tells the servants, find the fattened calf and offer it now for this son. Is God a God of wrath? Of course he is. A price must be paid. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, God, like the Father in the parable of Luke chapter 15, is running out of, What do you do with that? What do we do with all of this? I would encourage you to remember this. There is no record of the sins of the people of God in Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4 and later uh, in our study of the book of Hebrews we've been introduced to this idea of rest. Rest for the people of God. What is that rest? That rest is in part understanding the achievement of Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. He says in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. They are as far from me as the east is from the rest. This is why we're told that he's able to sit down. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he sit? Because the work is done. It's a place of honor in the presence of God. The sacrifice has been accepted. It has done its work, a single sacrifice for all time. Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. He is flanked by two criminals, both of whom, unlike Jesus, are guilty of their crimes. And one begins to mock Jesus. Oh, if you're the Son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us as well? That fool is chided by the other criminal on the other side of our Savior looks at Jesus and says, don't you know who this is? Don't you know what he said, what he's taught, what he's preached, what he's doing? Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus does the most extraordinary thing in the middle of his pain, his blood flowing from his body, his life flowing from his body, He gives the man hope. More than that, he makes a promise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today. This man has apparently not followed Jesus. He hasn't accrued some great sum of good works, he hasn't built a sterling resume. He hasn't proven himself worthy in any way imaginable. He has only said, Savior Jesus, remember me. It's in scenes just like that one where we know there's proof that our hope in heaven is entirely dependent on Jesus. It is all God. It is all God all grace. It is all what Jesus has accomplished. The entire scheme of heaven being worked out in the blood of Jesus Christ. For all my sins, for victory over Satan, to please our Heavenly Father, Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid it all. Father,